indigenous ways of knowing and doing are the path forward in this global reset, addressing climate change, improving the health and well-being, not just of indigenous people, of all people. It's rooted in the understanding that indigenous peoples know the way forward. We just have to let them lead it. That's Dr. Carrie Black, Assistant Professor of Engineering at the University of Calgary. And she's a leading world expert on sustainable development and infrastructure in First Nations communities. She's our guest on this episode of the Akamemak Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Tanse and welcome to the Akamemak Podcast. Akamemak is Cree for you all persevere, or in other words, keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, elders, and community leaders. And right now, that leading issue is the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID-19 has caused widespread loss of life and hardship, but it has also created a pause that some leaders say may provide an opportunity to change how economies and development works, making it more sustainable. It's called the Great Reset. It's supported by world and business leaders, including the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, the President of Microsoft, Mr. Brad Smith, and Britain's Royal Highness, Prince Charles. Unless we take the action necessary and we build uh, again in a greener and more sustainable and more inclusive way, then we will end up having more and more pandemics and more and more disasters from ever accelerating global warming and climate change. So what would the Great Reset mean for First Nations? To answer that, we're happy to have Dr. Kerry Black on the podcast. As well as being an assistant professor of engineering at the University of Calgary, she served on the First Nations Housing and Infrastructure Council, and she was a senior policy advisor here at the Assembly of First Nations. Dr. Kerry Black, thanks so much for coming on the Akamemak podcast. Thank you so much for having me, National Chief. It's an honor to be here. In the big picture, not only in Canada, but globally, how does an economic reset work? Well, I think we are in an unprecedented time. So the idea behind an economic reset that we're talking about right now centers around this concept of, of building back better, build back better approach is what we're hearing um, over and over in the news. And I think it necessitates um, a bit of a better understanding about where that's coming from. Build Back Better came out of the United Nations Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction. Um, and so it's really very much focused on recovery, rehabilitation, reconstruction. It's not typically mm -hmm. discussed in the context of a pandemic. And so how, why are we discussing about this in, in the context of a post-pandemic? Um, it's really rooted in the idea that we have an opportunity here um, to have a reset. And so when we talk mm -hmm. about this economic reset, we know, uh, and uh, economists from around the, the world, leading economists have been telling us for years that our economic understanding of the world uh, has changed, has shifted, and that requires a change in thinking. Uh, the theory that drives how we do business with mm -hmm. this pandemic has taken a massive blow. Um, we have to continue to evolve our thinking. It's, it's, we can no longer focus on a return to normal Mm -hmm. um, because this will actually result in uh, increased instability and, and economic fragility. Um, so this economic reset that we're talking about around the world really isn't just an economic reset, but it's, it's a chance to take a pause, 
um, to reevaluate and to rethink our approach to not just economics, but the way in which we live in this world. So it's almost like there's going to be billions and trillions of dollars spent both in the private and the public sector. So where should those resources be targeted? You know, that's kind of the question people are starting to lean towards right now. And whether you call it Build Back Better or the Great Reset, what could this Great Reset look like for First Nations peoples in Canada? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, the focus right now for most people is is two things. One, an immediate response. Um, and unfortunately, that typically looks like a bailout rather than an investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're also talking about long-term recovery. And so those are the two things that go hand in hand. And when we're talking about uh, Build Back Better, the reason we ha- we're having a great discussion about something like a, a great reset is that we can expand about how we typically approach this. So rather than focus strictly on uh, economic fallouts, we're going to focus on the social and economic fallouts from the pandemic. And we're also going to, at the same time, address ongoing challenges of climate change, uh, social exclusion, uh, biodiversity loss, food insecurity, etc. And Mm -hmm. so how does this work for Indigenous communities? I think it's important um, to first understand and really, really understand the root reason why pandemics disproportionately affect our Indigenous communities. Um, mm-hmm. And and for me, a big part of that is understanding that all of that tends to be infrastructure related. So I think when you, you've talked about with your previous hosts, the underlying social and economic disadvantages, historical and even um, contemporary colonization, greater burn, burden of chronic diseases, and that's not just here in Canada. If you look to our, our friends in, in Australia and New Zealand, in Australia alone, they estimate half the population of Indigenous people have a chronic uh, disease of some kind, and 25% have two or more. Um, and so that makes them more prone to, to being affected by the pandemic. But if we focus strictly on infrastructure, the reset provides us an opportunity um, to focus on the needs, uh, the strong relationship that infrastructure has with community health and well-being. Um, we can look to, say, our communities right now who have poor or no access to telecommunications, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, 54 communities along the coast of Vancouver Island and Haida Gwaii who are in the process of getting a better internet connectivity, for example. Uh, we talk about our 96 flying communities, but that doesn't include communities that are just plain remote mm-hmm. um, and so are just difficult to access. Look to BC for no shortage of examples there and all the northern prairies um, up into the territories. Um, I think knowledge isolation in that context is really key. How can you how can you truly fight a pandemic? How can you deal with it if you don't even have access to that connectivity? We have our communities like uh, Kasechewan, um in the James Bay that floods every single year based on the relocation in the 50s to a floodplain. Um, mm-hmm. They need to be evacuated. Uh, there's no resources really in place to support them. I think um, the reset reminds us that pandemic resilience uh, will be dictated by privilege and by access. And those are two things that we haven't afforded our Indigenous communities, uh, especially here in Canada. I think this is an opportunity to learn from our lessons from the H1N1 uh, pandemic, where we saw that our Indigenous communities, especially those that were geographically isolated, were disproportionately um, impacted. And so mm-hmm. when you think about that big picture, how... How do you ensure effective hand washing in remote communities that have no water? Um, How do you ensure that our students don't fall behind when we have uh, in our First Nations 
poor infrastructure for our education. And then we're asking people to work to learn from home when they don't have connectivity. Yeah. Um, and so I think it is really important to see those disparities. Before we can talk about a reset, we have to position ourselves as to where we are. We can't build back better in First Nations communities because we never built in the first place. Um, so we're just talking about doing a good job at the outset. So for First Nations people, we're not even at the starting line as rest of Canadians. So I used to always talk about the gap, six versus 63rd. Uh, Canada, according to the United Nations Human Development Index, rated sixth. But you apply the same indices to First Nations people, uh, we're 63rd. In the throne speech this year, the Liberals promised by 2030 that the infrastructure gap would and should be closed for First Nations people, Indigenous people. So we got to keep pushing them on that. Um, is there some examples that you can share, not only in Canada, but around the world, where economic resets have worked? You know, trying to always push governments, the public sector and private sectors to start targeting the investments to something that will really work towards long-term sustainable investments for future generations. Absolutely. I, th I think firstly, it's important to recognize that we are in an unprecedented time. I don't think there's been a moment in our history where we have had to face an economic uh, downfall such as that we're experiencing right now. At the same time, understanding that we are facing some serious issues uh, with our environment. And so right now we we are trying to merge both of those things. We're trying to do an economic reset, but more importantly, we need to do uh, a reset on our thinking and our ways of, of knowing and doing. Um, there's a recent quote from David Suzuki that says, there's no people that have a better track record of protecting and living in harmony with the environment than indigenous people. Um, and if that's what we're talking about going forward, that's where we need to, to focus. I think we can look to our partners um, in the UK on, the, on a Green New Deal, our Scandinavian partners who are looking at clean green economies. But I think it's important when we come back to uh, Canadian context and Indigenous peoples context to recognize that it's, while it's important to focus on those great examples and, and we can touch on a few of them, um, it's also important to recognize that there's some mm -hmm. pretty significant infrastructure gaps that exist to bring Indigenous people up to par. Um, and so we're talking about building back better and resetting, but we have to build better in the first place. We have to just build in the first place. Most communities don't have access to safe drinking water reliably. Um, they don't have adequate housing. They don't have uh, reliable infrastructure. And so before we talk about um, great examples of clean green pieces in Indigenous communities, we have to remember that we have that commitment from the federal government through the throne speech, through their mandate commitments, to bring that infrastructure uh, gap to a close. Um, you know, estimated anywhere from eight to 10 billion to 40 billion dollars and so that has to be addressed in some way. Um, I think it's important to uh, the examples that we're seeing around the world really focus on on building resilience um, and resilience is a really interesting word when we talk about how uh, this clean green economy that's going to make us more resilient. In order to really understand it you need to have a good understanding of what resilience means which it comes from the Latin word uh, resilio which really means to jump back um, it's talking about adaptation in the face of stress, disturbance, or adversity. I think we can look to our, our partners in New Zealand. The Maori have a different uh, word for this um, that I think is more important. It's kaitiaki, and mm -hmm. kaitiaki is a, is a term for guardianship. And I think that intergenerational guardianship, the responsibility towards lands and environment and cultural heritage, that's uh, a focus that I think we should really look to rather than just focusing on how do we make something resilient, how do we utilize um, this idea of guardianship that is inherent in Indigenous peoples 
ways of knowing and doing, their understanding of the interconnectedness yeah. um, that's inherent to your teachings. I think those are examples um, that we can turn to to help us uh, move forward in this. So if we look um, around the world, there are some interesting ideas. If you Down in, in South America and Peru, they were one of the first countries to introduce a, a indigenous climate uh, platform. And so they've, is that something that we should be considering here in Canada, Canadian Indigenous Climate climate Platform um, by First Nations, by Indigenous people, for Indigenous people? Um, I think there's, there's good examples of how Scandinavian countries are looking to decarbonate their economy. Um, it's a wake-up call for us to be more inclusive and build more sustainable societies. But we have not been faced with this specific situation ever. And that's important mm -hmm. because that's why this great reset is is so vital that's why the conversation that we're having about moving forward in post-pandemic is so important because we've never done it before and this is really our opportunity um to to move in a new direction a key word you used was harmony and uh when you quoted david Suzuki, there's another individual um that has a book out with that that exact title his royal highness prince charles came up with a book called harmony I had the great privilege of meeting with him and I talked about his book and I, I made this point that I almost thought you were a First Nations person um, because what he's talking about, how we're all interconnected, how we're all related. And he almost espoused throughout that book um, our indigenous worldview, you know, how we're linked to the land, we're linked to the water, the plants, the male plants. There was a, such a good connection. So that harmony is, is a key word that we have to build upon. And uh, you did talk about closing the infrastructure gap and because first nations aren't even at the starting line yet the 96 flying communities the 50 plus boil water advisories uh the lack of roads and highways and and getting even high-speed internet all those things are, are are definitely needs in canada um now you're an expert on water issues with first nations and um so how do you see a reset improving that? And how would you like to see that play out? It's a great question. I think what's great about water is that it in, is such a holistic encapsulating piece that covers every single possible aspect of what we could reset. Um, no more so than policy, for example. Um, if we want to better tackle our water uh, crisis, not just here in Canada, but around the world, it requires much stronger policy. For our First Nations and Indigenous communities, we're talking about national recognition of land tenure. We're talking about access um, and resource rights that's in accordance with not just national legislation, but international legislation. The application of free prior and informed consent, improved collaboration, but real collaboration, um, where First Nations and Ind Indigenous people are leading um, that conversation. Uh, we're talking about fair and equitable sharing. Um, if we look to Ontario, for example, where we have the highest number of long-term boil water advisories, and you know, 61 is the current count, but that doesn't include communities that have been on and off advisories for decades, um, which in, in that context includes our community of Attawapiskat, who's not technically considered a long-term drinking water advisory right now, but faces significant issues. Um, I think it's important to understand that if we want to tackle these issues, we have to think about it uh, rather than solely focused and in my profession from an engineering perspective that focus tends to be on the technical 
So the short-term immediate response is I'll give you some bottled water. The long-term recovery plan is maybe I'll build you a water treatment plant. Neither of those two things are thought of in a holistic way that takes into account uh, community perspective that thinks about long-term sustainability. The strength, I think, for water is how easy it is to understand the link to health and well-being. It's not as easy to make that mm -hmm. link with the rest of infrastructure. It's hard for people to understand the link between a paved road and their health and well-being. But infrastructure as a part of the physical environment is such an important social determinant of health. And as we do a reset, we need to remember that um, this reset's happening at the same time as our fight for climate change. And, and there's the issue of climate colonialism which is really that the least resilient are the ones who are shouldered with the responsibility of bearing most of the climate impacts. And that is no truer than for our more northern communities here in Canada, and not just our First Nations, but our Inuit uh, communities in the north. They will have to face the impacts of climate change, rising temperatures at a higher rate than the rest of, of Canada. That impacts their water sources greatly. Going back to the Ontario example for water, Industry has long had a stronghold on access to the watershed, more so than the rest of the communities. Here in where I'm in, uh, in Alberta, um, first in time, first in right is, a, is a, a policy that's in place for access to water that is not in keeping with the UN declaration for one, but it doesn't happen anywhere else in the, in the country. We have examples, you know, the Navajo Nation, if you look to our neighbors in the south who are struggling um, with this pandemic, a big part of that is access to water. Um, and they should have been protected through the 1908 Winters Doctrine, but they were excluded from negotiations. And now, if you estimate that, say, the average American uses 80 to 90 gallons, so that's 350, 400 liters per day, there are members in Navajo Nation who have two to three gallons, eight to 10 liters, which doesn't even meet the minimum requirements to addressing uh, for their own health and well-being, regardless of a pandemic. Um, and so when we talk about a great, a, a great reset, I think it's a reset in our thinking. I think it's a reset in our, in our approach to inherently technical problems, needing to address them from, an, from a non-technical perspective. And for me, that goes, that's really strongly rooted in Indigenous knowledge, which is foundationally the original sustainability science. Um, it's, it naturally provides early warning systems. Uh, through cultural practices, language, ceremony, it teaches you about how to protect the planet and the earth. And I think that's where, if we can, if we can integrate those knowledge systems into our, our approach, if we can actually raise them up to be equal to, or more than, more important than, our Western approaches, that's where we're going to start to see measurable change in how we're fighting climate change, how we're going to reset the economy, how we're going to make um, Indigenous people in Canada, um, their livelihoods improve. Um, the question I have going forward now in terms of uh, rethinking our economy and, and, and balancing the economy and the environment coming out of this pandemic, um, are there any signs of developments that give you hope as an individual? Absolutely. I, I think what's important to note is that that has come out of these great examples. The signs of hope have come from a resilience that exists uh, for me that is inherent in Indigenous people. Um, the uh, indigenous people around the world are resilient uh, in their nature. They've been forced to be resilient um, because of the way in which we have treated them for hundreds of years. Um, and so for me, all of these examples come from a really grassroots, community-based um, approach to doing better for their people. I think there's some really great um, projects that are happening in the rest of Canada that aren't, aren't being lifted up. 
um, enough. And so you could look to say, um, Yellow Quill First Nation who developed flood mapping tools that integrated Indigenous knowledge and science together as one. We could look to, um, in BC, south of Lytton, BC, in the Fraser Canyon, Kanaka Bar, um, they developed an adaptation plan as part of their vulnerability assessment, um, <clears throat> where, I mean, it's an interesting community. They have five watersheds that contribute to their traditional food sources, their wildlife, agriculture, drinking water, hydroelectric power. They asked their communities um, what their concerns were and matched it um, to climate impacts that, that were happening around. Um, and part of their adaptation strategy has six priorities, water resources, forest fires, traditional foods, access roads, and su supporting self-sufficient youth and community engagement and education. I think these really sort of holistic ways of thinking about what tends to be a technical approach. So the, the fault I have, um, or the blame I put on uh, traditional econ economists is the same that I, I give to traditional engineers. If you solely focus on the technology, you will never achieve the outcome that you want. You'll have the output, you'll have a great, you know, water, maybe you'll have a great water treatment plant. Maybe, maybe not. We could debate that another time. But the outcome, the health and well-being of the individuals won't be there. I think we can look to IRTC, the Interlakes Reserve Tribal Council. They did a community risk mapping where they actually brought people out onto the land to identify sort of where their climate risks. They brought their elders with them. We talk about language revitalization. There's no better opportunity to, to have that than to engage with our elders on these plans going forward. Um, there's examples of, of Gift Lake Métis settlement. Uh, they've established an environmental monitors program. Um, they collect data, they raise awareness, they try to engage. Um, in uh, Northern Manitoba and Garden Hill First Nation, there's the Meacham Project. Um, so that's one of your 96 uh, flying communities accessible via air and ice roads, but they, are on a, they were on a journey to build a self-sustaining farm. And so they combined indigenous and agricultural knowledge to, towards food sovereignty. Um, and so better mm -hmm. social economic health outcomes. There's lots more examples. I, I think a, a good example of a build back better approach is Indian Island First Nation in New Brunswick. Um, they identified that they'll, you know, most of their community will be underwater by um, in the next 50 years. And so they're integrating traditional knowledge and scientific studies to better prepare their community against flooding, which includes things like um, protecting their homes, uh, raising their road levels, but uh, an important one for their Indigenous communities around Canada is relocating the graves of their ancestors on their traditional burial grounds. Um, they're planning ahead. Uh, yeah. Other examples are Lubicon Cree here in northern Alberta, you know, very much in, in a highly developed zone. Uh, they're in a low energy transition. They, they moved on to solar and the big advocates for the solar projects in Lubicon talked about it aligning, renewable energy projects aligning perfectly with in, Indigenous philosophies and teachings about reciprocity, reconnection, relationship. Um, we can look to uh, the practice of traditional burns, which help us to so a practice that has historically been done by our First Nations people and stopped being done because... Um, uh, white uh, settlers didn't feel that it was the appropriate path forward, but we're learning now actually it is. That's actually how you improve biodiversity. Um, Dr. Leroy Littlebear down here, not too far from where I am um, in Lethbridge and uh, with the Kainai First Nation on the importance of including Indigenous worldviews in environmental management. Um, his work with the restoration of buffalo um, to preserve ecological balance. 
I think is a great one. There was some great work being done with the Inuit about climate change. And, and there actually, there was an interesting project of working with elders to actually develop language to talk about climate change because it wasn't included in Inuktitut, the, the words for to talk about climate change. Um, one really great one is the Great Bear Forest Carbon Project. Um, so carbon storage is in a Canadian context really important because of the sheer amount of forest that we have. Um, but we have uh, the world's largest um, forest carbon initiative with old growth trees in the Great Bear Rainforest, and that's in North and Central Pacific in the Haida Gwaii. It's a quarter of the coastal temperate rainforest. Um, people have lived there for you know 15,000 years. <laughs> um, and so the coastal First Nations developed uh, a land use model and they made 85% of that off limits to industrial logging. And rather than open it up for logging, they allow corporations to buy carbon offsets. Um, and those sales go right back to First Nations stewardship. Um, so they've got really innovative funding models on that piece that um, part of their marine planning partnership for the North, North Pacific Coast. It's uh, kind of recognized uh, around the world as a really um, interesting project. Um, the carbon offset sales not only support First Nations stewardship, but they have a coastal guardian watchman. They're highly, in uh, highly trained uh, guardians of land, water, wildlife, cultural sites. Um, and so they use that financing for lots of other pieces and it, they've also used it for uh, other renewable, sorry, other renewable energy projects um, to reduce their dependency on, on diesel, which is uh, common in the coast. Um, I think those are all these grassroots, community by community approaches that we can see across Canada. So no shortage of, of positive stories. What's important now is sort of lifting yeah. them up and saying that um, indigenous ways of knowing and doing are the path forward in this global reset. It is our way to 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 move forward, addressing climate change, um, improving the health and well-being, not just of indigenous people, of all people, um, but it's rooted in the understanding that indigenous peoples know the way know the way forward. We just have to let them lead it. Are there any last comments you want to share with our listeners, you know, regarding this great reset or building back better uh, instead of just shovel-ready but shovel-worthy projects as we attempt to close the infrastructure gap between First Nations and everybody else in Canada? But globally, bearing in mind the climate change accord from Paris uh, and, uh, and the gap that really needs to be closed in Canada, are there any last comments you'd like to share with our listeners before we move on. Absolutely. I think um, I, I'd be happy if I never heard shovel ready again. I think shovel ready won't won't lead us in the direction that we want to go. I think now's the time for our global reset to move beyond the thinking of just an economic reset, but a, a change of mindset. And fundamental to that change of mindset for me is investing in, in wisdom-based science or indigenous-based science, which is a key to us being able to move forward. I think education and awareness will be important to help us um, work, to help us lead, have people understand. Um, and it's only once people really understand that they'll be able to, to mobilize, to move towards action. I think we should prioritize um, the original sustainability science that Indigenous people have. Uh, here in Canada, I, I hope for a fundamental shift in the way in which we think about inherently technical problems and that providing the provision of safe, clean drinking water, which is a recognized human right, moves beyond just here's some bottled water, here's your brand new water treatment plant, but really is holistic. I think there's lots of 
of examples. And I think Indigenous people through their resilience will come up with those examples on their own, whether or not the federal government or the systems or the policies in place allow them to do so. They have shown their resilience time and time again. What I would love to see is for us to take pause, um, change our own mindset, lift up the voices of our Indigenous people here in Canada and around the world um, to allow and allow them to speak for us going forward, allow them to lead the way, um, allow their knowledge and their practice and their uh, understanding of the world and its interconnectedness and our harmony with nature to lead our path forward. Great comments. Thank you. That was Dr. Carrie Black, Assistant Professor of Engineering at the University of Calgary and a leading expert. Thank you all for listening to the Akamemak Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe so don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always... We want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.